Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 4, the writer says, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than all your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak, you will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? The Bible teaches that there are powerful, intelligent, spirit beings, and they exist. And they appear to have the ability to interact in our dimension, but they live in an entirely different dimension. When I first came to the front range, I went to, of all things, a psychic fair, and I did a seminar on what I called interdimensional beings. And the, the people who were at the psychic fair were really excited about a presentation on interdimensional beings until they discovered that I was coming from the perspective of historical biblical Christianity, that there were both benevolent and malevolent spirit beings who could enter in and out of the dimension according to the Bible, and that the Bible called them angels. And then they kicked me out. These powerful, glorious beings served as messengers for God at specific times in the Old Testament. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul answers the question, what purpose then does the law serve? He was asking and answering the question about the law, and, and it was added, he writes, because of the transgressions till the seed, speaking of Jesus, should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. In Acts chapter 7, verse 53, it says, who have received the law by the directions of angels and have not kept it. In Deuteronomy 33, 2, it says, And the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Zaire, it's the mountain, and he shone from Mount Paran. He came with ten thousands of saints. And he's speaking in that particular passage 
of angelic beings, holy beings. From his right hand came a fiery law. So angels figured predominantly in Hebrew culture, but also in Hebrew religion. In Hebrew religion, it was their belief that God used angelic beings to bring the law. God used angelic beings to show up in times past, speaking to the prophets and, and encouraging and warning them. And so you can imagine that in the ancient world, many people thought that God was too holy or too busy to bother with people. And it is true that God is holy. But it is not true that God has ordained mediators or substitutes other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember who the audience is. These are Hebrew people. These are Jewish believers who are under enormous pressure to abandon Christianity and return to Judaism. John Milton wrote, Millions of spiritual creatures walk the earth unseen both when we sleep and when we awake, unquote. No wonder the Bible says that sometimes we might be entertaining angels unaware, but these strange, mysterious, and fascinating beings have been the object of much speculation. And you can imagine even worship in certain cultures and societies. Some people think that they're too unworthy to talk to God directly or make their desires known to the deity directly. And so they ask for intercession, if you will, from lesser beings. Some people seek, seek interactions and communications with spirit beings who they think will tell them the truth about God and the afterlife. And maybe you grew up in a world that wasn't particularly religious. Or maybe you grew up in a world where people toyed with the idea that you could make contact with spirit beings. And that these spirit beings would tell you the truth about heaven or hell or about God and the Bible. And the writer of Hebrews wants the reader to know that Jesus is superior, not only to angels, but to the worship of angels or those who were trusting in angels or those who sought angelic mediation in order to have a right relationship with God. And so in verse four, it says, having become so much better than the angels, remember, better is a key word in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is considered to be Superior, better than angels, than Moses, than the tabernacle and the priesthood. And so having been so much better than the angels, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So the writer of Hebrews says Jesus is superior. How? By inheritance. In what way? Jesus is the heir of all things. Angels aren't. The writer of Hebrews says, are angelic beings going to be the people who receive this universe or the next universe or this world or the next world? Jesus is the heir of all things. Jesus didn't change from non-existence to existence, 
but rather when it says in verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, critics, skeptics, and doubters would say, well, Jesus is a created being. And so here when it says, having become so much better than the angels, the only reason that he would even have the ability to become is in fact because he is a created being. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, this is a reference to a change of state, not a state of existence. There's two kinds of beings that exist. The self-existent being who is God and then all created beings. The line of demarcation becomes, of course, is Jesus a self-existent being or is he a created being? Well, Jesus as the second person of the Trinity has always existed. But the second person of the, the Godhead acquires a new nature. And this is what historical biblical Christianity teaches. The historical biblical Christianity teaches that Jesus the Son, God the Son, the self-existent Son, has always existed as the self-existent Son. And that in eternity, he takes on a new nature, a human nature. He acquires a second nature. So he becomes one person with two natures. Later in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, if you just turn the page, it says, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for what? For everyone. The writer of Hebrews argues that the second person of the Trinity becomes and acquires a second nature, a human nature, so that he can suffer and die on the cross of Calvary. And so the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus has both an inherent superiority and an acquired superiority. James McDonald points out that the acquitted or the acquired superiority, quote, results from his resurrection, ascension, and exaltation as Lord in Christ. In incarnation, he's made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. His inherent superiority has to do with his eternal relationship as son of God. The more excellent name is the name of the son. In this particular instance, son becomes both a title and a name and a designator of relationship. And so the writer quotes Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And by the way, in this particular passage from verse 4 to verse 14, the writer is going to make appeals seven times to the Old Testament writers. He quotes Psalm 2-7, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so the book of Psalms is going to be quoted liberally. Not just here till the end of the chapter, but throughout the book of Hebrews some 16 times. And so in verse 5, it says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I've begotten you. Well, if you ask the Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll say, Well, he said it to Jesus, who's the archangel Michael. No. 
this passage is not a passage that proves that Jesus was an angelic creature, but exactly the opposite. To which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? The implication and the way that the text is arranged and the composition of the text is it expects a negative answer. To no angel did he ever say that. The careful student of the scripture will say, well, aren't angels collectively called benelachim? That means the sons of God. There are if memory serves me correctly, four groups of beings called the sons of God in the Bible. Angelic beings, Elohim, they're called sons of God because they have no natural progenitor. They don't have a father. Adam is called the son of God. God creates Adam in a special act of creation, and so Adam is called the son of God. So angels are called the sons of God. Adam is called the son of God. And New Testament believers, in John's gospel, it says, who became the sons of God, not by the will of the flesh or the will of man, but who have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so there's three groups. So it's Adam, angels, and believers. They're called the sons of God because they're born from on high in a supernatural birth that is given when a person enters into a right relationship with God in Christ. And so when he says, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. When we look at that term begotten, we usually think of it in the normal sense of parents giving birth to a child. But here the reference isn't to Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, but rather to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The Bible teaches that the Son proceeds from the Father. In what sense? As an uncreated creator... As a self-existent being, Jesus has all of the rights, attributes, and privileges of God. In Colossians 1.18, it calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead. The second quotation refers to Solomon. He says, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, in verse 5, the second quotation I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In what sense, then, is the writer using it? It could very well be that the writer is making reference to 2 Samuel in chapter 7, which is a reference to the house of David. David wanted to build a house for God, but God decreed that Solomon would build the house. He said, David, you're a man of blood, so you're not going to build the temple of the Lord. So God promised David that David would be a father to Solomon, and Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, applies that promise to the Messiah, to the Christ, who according to the writer of Hebrews is superior to the angels 
And, and according to Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus himself says, there is someone here among you who is greater than Solomon. And so in verse 6, it says, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Again, the writer quotes Psalm 97, verse 7. It is perhaps an, an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, where in the, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Testament, which was literally translated in about the middle of the second century B.C. to a huge Jewish population that was living in Alexandria, Egypt, they, they, and then this particular version became widely used in the first century. The quote is a reference to the return of Christ to the earth. Let all be put to shame who served carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you Benelohim. Worship him, all you Benelohim, spirit beings. You and I would use the term angelic beings. There's a Dead Sea Scroll fragment that was discovered among the cache of, of, of fragments that were uncovered that alludes to Deuteronomy 32, 43. It's actually written in there. And let all the Benelohim angels worship him. And so here in verse 6, it says, let all the angels worship him. The angels worship the Lord at the coming of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. They're going to worship him at his return. They're going to worship Jesus in the eternal state. There's a picture in the book of Revelation of spirit beings, angelic beings, circling the throne of God saying, holy, holy, holy. And here's the point that the author is making. Angels worship Jesus. Jesus does not worship angels. Angels worship Jesus. Angels worship Jesus because they're creatures. Jesus is worshiped because he's the creator. The Jewish people reading this book would have understood that God has the right to be worshipped. And the writer of Hebrews makes the point that Christ has the right to be worshipped. And the writer of Hebrews, contrary to much Jewish evangelism, makes the point that Jesus is God. Look at verse 5 again. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And then in verse 8, but to the son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The writer of Hebrews basically says, God calls Jesus God. So in the New Testament... God calls Jesus God. John calls Jesus God. Peter calls Jesus God. Paul calls Jesus God. And so you're left with this reoccurring theme that Jesus is God. And so the writer of Hebrews brings us to the heart of the matter. Jesus is God. 
and deserves all the rights and the privileges that belong to God. Someone has said, to worship God is to realize the purpose for which God created us. William Temple wrote, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purposes of God. I read something today of all days. I'm hoping I brought it up here with me. It was a quote by Veronica, I think that's her name, Osteen. And I bet you I didn't bring it up. It's not here. But basically, she was quoted. Well, maybe I did bring it up. Let's see if I can find it. Ah, found it. It's not Veronica, it's Victoria Osteen. I was doing my radio program today and I wrote my own copy of the news. I took it off the internet. I'll just give you the copy real quick. This was posted everywhere online today. Hamas is attacking, Israel is defending, Russia is invading, the Middle East is smoldering, Boko Haram is massacring, ISIS is marching, Iran and North Korea are threatening, American cities are crumbling, southern border dissolving, debt skyrocketing, Obamacare falling apart, the VA is showing us exactly how Obamacare will wind up, the IRS is violating the law, Americans are hurting, our enemies are laughing, and Obama is fundraising. And that's the news. No, that was the end of the news. I just did that. That was, we're done. But that wasn't, after that, Victoria Osteen was quoted as saying, I just want to encourage every one of us to realize when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's the thing that gives him the greatest joy. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Amen. And then the 16,000 plus people at the Houston Astrodome break into spontaneous applause. And I'm thinking, really? Really? That's some people's view of worship? That we worship God in order to make ourselves better. You know, that shows a faulty view, not only of the nature of God, but even the concept of worship. To worship, listen to William Law again, is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote our will to the purpose of God. If that isn't the constituent elements of worship, then what is? No wonder Jesus said, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. 
In Matthew 4.10, why would Jesus say, worship the Lord your God and serve only him, but yet angels worship him and angels bow down to him? Some people will take umbrage even with the expression of firstborn. Well, if Jesus is the firstborn, then how can he be the creator of God? But firstborn can be a reference to a point in time or genealogy, or it can be a reference to first in rank or first in honor. Isaac is called the firstborn of Abraham, but he's not. Ishmael is. So why in the world does the Bible make reference to the fact that certain people are firstborn. It's because they're chief. So it becomes a, a type and a picture of rank and honor. And that's exactly the way that it's used in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And also in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 18. And we might just take a moment and turn to Colossians chapter 1 because I've been re referencing it a lot, but, but it's important that you actually know. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 and then in verse 18, it says concerning Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, same word, prototokos, over creation, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is from the beginning. And note, the firstborn from the dead. He has privilege and honor because he's risen from the dead. And in verse 7 it says, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. The word spirits or angels translates the plural form of the noun pneuma. The word occurs some 385 times in the New Testament. 200 of those times, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Only one time is it translated wind in John chapter 3 verse 8. So, and it says, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits. They're spirit beings. The writer in Psalm 104, verse 4 says, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. The psalm is a praise to the God of creation. In Psalm 104, verse 4, at the beginning of the psalm, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you're very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. The picture is of the creator. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is the creator and the director of angels. They obey his will with the speed of the wind and with the fervor of fire. And so it becomes a poetic expression. The angelic beings are created to love him, to worship him, and to serve him. And so the writer of Hebrews is making the point. One is a created being, one is the creator. 
One is the being who is served, and the other is the being that is doing the serving. So the angels are spirit beings created by God to serve God's servants. Now, in one sense, we know that the theme of the New Testament in part, particularly the Gospel of Mark, is that Jesus is the servant. In Matthew, Jesus is the sovereign. And that's exactly the point that's going to be made by the very next verse, that Jesus is superior in respect to his reign. And so in verse 8 it says, but to the Son, he, that's God, that's Jehovah, but to the Son, Jehovah says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Why does Jehovah call the Son God? I think that the most obvious answer is the answer. Because he is. So Jesus is superior by his excellent name in verses 4 and 5. Jesus is superior by his earthly fame in verses 6 and 7. Jesus is superior by his eternal claim in verses 8 through 4. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. The writer speaks of the glory of Jesus' person in verses 8 and 9. The sovereignty of his majesty is a reference to his throne. Your throne, O God. The sovereignty of his majesty. The deity of his person. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Son is the subject of the conversation. Jesus is enthroned in heaven. He's enthroned in his kingdom. So here's what the author does. Think about it. He piles sovereignty on top of deity, on top of dynasty. His throne is forever and ever. So he goes from sovereignty, deity, dynasty, authority. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness. And then he adds integrity. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. You know, in our culture and society, when the president takes the oath of office, he raises his hand and he places his hand on a Bible and he swears to God that he's going to uphold the Constitution of the United States of America. A being who appeals to a greater authority and swears a solemn allegiance, Jesus doesn't swear on a Bible. Jesus loves righteousness, hates wickedness. And so the writer of, a, of Hebrews appeals to the integrity of his identity. Again, once again, the writer quotes 
Psalms. This time he's quoting Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All the garments are scented with myrrh and aloe and cassia out of ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7 is a beautiful Hebrew poetry and expression of marriage. The psalm is a marriage psalm. And the picture is a picture of the Messiah and Israel joined together, united together. God clearly states that Christ is a throne. The Father calls him God. Now again, the reason why all this becomes important to you, I guarantee you, you will meet someone tomorrow. If you were to ask them the question, tell me what you think about Jesus. And almost everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Whenever I've asked the question, tell me what you think about Jesus, no one has ever said to me, I don't have any thoughts on Jesus whatsoever. Everyone has some thought. He's a great man, possibly the greatest man. People in India and and. and the eastern part of the world might say, he was a great man, quite possibly an avatar who came down from the sky. He permeated, filled the universe with his, the glory of his consciousness. And you ask the atheist. He's a mythical construct made up by people to make atheists feel bad about themselves. Everyone has some sort of an idea who he may or may not be. The writer of Hebrews believes that he's the supreme being. Look at the expression, therefore God, your God has anointed you. The writer has spoken of deity, dynasty, authority, integrity, but now he launches into the land of spirituality. This is God's anointing. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. In the Bible, Moses anointed Aaron. Samuel anointed David. Elijah anointed Elisha. Samuel the prophet, like I said, anointed David. So uh, here you have a picture of a priest and a prince and a prophet each anointed for his office, each anointed by another human being. But the writer of Hebrews is basically saying, the Lord Jesus has been anointed by God. Not as a religious construct or a mythical being or where a group of people have gathered together and decided, hey, out of all of the human beings who have ever lived, which one do you suppose is the one that's worthy of our Worship. Which person is worthy of our focus? Jesus was anointed that he might redeem. And now Jesus is anointed that he might reign. 
And like I said in verse 9, you've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Jesus loves righteousness, hates lawlessness, our Savior. Now think about this. The lover of righteousness is also the dispenser of justice and gladness, and the anointing speaks of life. It's an empowerment. And even in the ancient world, when the Hebrew people would anoint other people. They would use oil. It becomes a symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so when it says, with the oil of gladness more than your companions, companions is the Greek word metokos. Here, your companions, metokos, is a word that describes the sharing in or the partnering in or the partaking of partners or associates. The term is used in Luke chapter 5 verse 7 and several times in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 and chapter 6 verse 4, chapter 12 verse 8. It refers to angels or human beings who are anointed for an office like Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings. And if the oil of gladness is the same as the oil of joy, which is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 3, then it's a reference to those who have mourned in Zion. But now they're made glad. They're clothed with praise. Because people were in mourning over sin and over the difficulties that sin has brought. But now they are clothed in a garment of praise because the true Messiah has shown up. We are companions of Christ more than your companions. Part of the point, I think, of the passage is that everyone who identifies with Jesus, who loves Jesus, who embraces Jesus, who believes that Jesus is who Jesus says that he is, they become participants in his ministry, in his reign. The writer of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus has obtained the right to rule by his perfect life, by his matchless sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. And so his partners, that's the companions, will rule and reign with him in that righteous kingdom. And so we're invited to consider the glory of Christ's power in verses 10 and 12. And then the glory of Christ's position in verses 13 and 14. In verse 10 it says, And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the creator that the world didn't just suddenly come into existence for no good reason. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. The Creator has created. They will perish. The creation will disappear. But you remain. One is temporal, and one is eternal. And they will grow old like a garment. The temporal universe, according to the second law of thermodynamics, 
will unfold and unwind. In verse 12, it says, like a cloak, you will fold them up and they will be changed. But you're the same and your years will not fail. Think about this for a moment. Jesus is called Lord. He's the creator. He laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of his hands. Heaven and earth are temporal. He is eternal. Universe subject to decay and dissolution. Universe changes. Messiah doesn't change. Time can't make the Lord less. Over the course of time, Jesus does not become less and less and less. This is why the New Testament writer will later say, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Angels are created beings. Jesus, the eternal son. The same Jesus who created the universe will one day, like a cloak, fold them up and they will be changed. Listen to what the writer is saying. The same Jesus who made the universe will dissolve the universe. We use the term dissolve the universe, but what we mean is judge the universe. The writer quotes Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And so then he says that Jesus is superior in regard to his reward. Look at verse 13, it says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool? Again, the psalm has been called the key psalm. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand? He's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Do you remember when this passage is quoted in the New Testament? Remember, he's speaking to the religious leaders. And Jesus asks him, tell me who you think the Messiah is. He's the son of David. And then Jesus says, why then, in Psalm 110, verse 1, they didn't have chapters and verses back in those days. I'm using that for your convenience. He says, why then does David, by the power of the Holy Spirit, call him Lord? And they said, we don't have an answer for you. And remember, Jesus' response is, then therefore I don't have an answer for you because they had asked him, by what authority are you doing the things that you're doing? By what authority are you saying the things that you're saying? But when the psalmist says, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? No angel ever received such instruction. Because remember, to sit at the right hand signified honor and limitless power. To become the footstool is the universal sign of subjugation and universal dominion. Leupold suggests that by giving this position to his son, God made, according to Leupold, him co-equal in rank and authority with himself. And so virtually declaring his divine character, unquote. In Psalm 110, verse 4, just a little bit later on in the psalm, we read, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to come back to this psalm to prove that this Messiah, this Messiah is superior to Judaism. 
Because he's superior to Moses and he's superior to the law and he's superior to the priesthood and he's superior to the temple. Jesus is the priest who is the king according to the order of Melchizedek. This mysterious figure that we'll talk more about when we get to that particular portion. The apostle Peter quotes the same passage in Acts chapter 2 verse 34. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The enemies of Christ have not bowed the knee. They have not been made his footstool. Yet. This is why Paul will later write, Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. And so this verse of Psalm 110 verse 1 is repeated in Matthew 22:44, Mark chapter 12 verse 36, Luke chapter 20 verse 43, Acts chapter 2 verse 35. Why do you suppose there's a constant repetition of this verse? And the constant repetition is given because the writers all want everyone to understand that Jesus is king and lord. And so in verse 14 it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So the writer summarizes the place of angels. He says, okay, the angels, they're ministering spirits. He contrasts that with Jesus, the enthroned son. The angels work to minister to the saints. But also the angels minister to the unconverted. Do angels have a ministry to people who identify themselves as Christians? I think that the answer is yes. Do angels also minister to the unconverted, to the unbeliever? Is there such a thing as guardian angels? The Bible repeatedly talks about evil spirits who wage an incessant war against God's elect, according to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And so should it really surprise us that there are holy angels who watch over nations and perhaps over families and over individuals? There's an obscure verse that's given in the book of Matthew where Jesus speaks of angelic beings. You remember, remember he says... Um, that it's not a good idea to harm these little children. It would be better that a millstone is wrapped around their neck and they be thrown into the ocean because their angels are forever before the face of the Father. There seems to be powerful, powerful, powerful evidence that there are invisible creatures who follow you every moment of every day. And you may or may not be aware of their presence. Some of you have become aware of their presence in particularly difficult times in your life where all of a sudden you just glanced over just for a moment or, or you were delivered where you should have probably been dead and you were supernaturally preserved in your life. But that's not the point of this passage. The point of the passage is that Jesus is superior to the angels. When you pray the prayer, 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a promise about the future, a future kingdom. And so at the end when it says, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? I'm going to suggest to you that it's probably not just simply a promise for people who will be saved, but it is a promise for those who will be ushered in to a future kingdom where Jesus is the Lord. John Calvin wrote, the angels are the dispensers and administrators of the divine beneficence toward us. They regard our safety, undertake our defense, direct our ways, exercise a, a constant solicitude that no evil befalls us. It's his ancient way of saying angels are there to make sure that we don't get into trouble. And so the dignity of angels is service. And the dignity of the Son is the dignity that's given to God. So what's the role and function of Jesus? He rules and reigns. Think about it. Quickly, let's review. Jesus is a king in his kingdom in verse 8. Jesus is sinless in verse 9. Jesus is the one who designs and upholds the universe in verse 10. Jesus is the eternal creator in verse 11. Jesus is unchangeable in verse 12. Jesus is the final conqueror in verse 13. Jesus is the Lord of the angels. And so to which of the angels did he ever say, I'll share your throne? In Matthew's gospel, we're told in chapter 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in glory, he will come with his angels. He will sit on his royal throne. This is interesting. In light of that, the very next chapter, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. In light of that, the reader is hit with the admonition, you should pay attention you should pay attention and not neglect, not reject, but rather accept Jesus. Because he's superior in his relationship to the Father in verses 4 through 7. He's superior in regard to his reign in verses 8 through 12. He's superior in regard to the reward that is given him, which is everything. In verses 13 and 14. Jesus has been promised by his father that he will make his enemies his footstool. And no angel, no angel, no angel has ever been invited to share God's throne. But there was one angel. There was one angel who took it upon himself to seize that throne and to make that throne his own. And he was cast out of heaven. Angels, beautiful angels, gifted angels, powerful angels, as beautiful and gifted and as powerful as they are, servants. And since only one angel 
has ever took it upon himself to seize the throne and make that throne his own, that angel's consistent message throughout time and eternity has been exactly that message. Seize the throne for yourself. Where God rules and reigns, you should rule and reign. Where God has authority, you should have authority. Even though God is the creator, he shouldn't be able to tell you what to do. And yes, even though you have some setbacks, some limitations, some difficulties, you shouldn't let a little thing like sin keep you from being the ruler and the Lord of your own life. After all, Satan doesn't. But the writer of Hebrews is going to say exactly the opposite. He's going to say everything that pretends to be better than Jesus is not. And so, in the next chapter, the hearers will be warned. God will reveal his purpose of humanity. And he will declare that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels and given glory and honor and grace because Jesus did what no angel could ever do for you. He lived the perfect life that you couldn't live. He died the death that you deserved. And then he rises from the dead to prove that everything that God has to say about our very real and difficult condition is true. So, let's pray. And we're going to have communion in just a moment. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Just hold the elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, since Jesus is the king in his kingdom, and since he's the sinless one, and since he designs and upholds the universe, and since he's the eternal creator, and he's unchangeable and the final conqueror, it makes perfect sense that we would Make him both king and Lord. And Heavenly Father, again, we pray that as we look at this argument and we think about what the writer is saying, that Jesus deserves all honor and glory and praise and worship. And that even though there are people who have ideas about Jesus that are inconsistent or completely detached from what the Bible has to say about him, what God has to say about him, what he has to say about himself and what his closest companions had to say about him, Lord, we pray that we would think long and hard when our friends and family tell us things about Jesus that we know aren't true. And that, Lord, we would point them to a source of information, of credible information about the truth of his identity.
the truth of his mission and the truth of his destiny and how his destiny somehow belongs to us as his close companions, men and women who will accompany him throughout eternity. And so again, Lord, we thank you for this time. Prepare our hearts now for communion. In Jesus' name.